encouraging as we get toward the end of the book. And this chapter 30, 139, where we left off and starting in, is uh, a marvelous insight, I think, into David's mind and how he appreciated the great wonders and the providence of God. Uh, I know I woke up this morning about 3 o'clock and decided to go out and sit in the backyard and look up at the stars for a while and uh, some of these thoughts actually went through my mind as I sat there and then as I read this it, uh, it, it felt good to know that maybe we're getting our, line, our thinking in line with where God would have it uh, as we work toward being what we ought to be and it takes time and energy and, and work to get ourselves where we ought to be. But David had a great sense of awe here. There's nothing negative in this chapter. It's, it's all about the wonders of God, really. Uh, he, in the chapter 138, we showed how God is high, and yet he shows respect and concern for the lowly. And before that, how do we sing songs of Zion uh, in Babylon? So we find the church still enmeshed in the society around us, and even we struggle with the world, even though we be somewhat apart from it. And yet, in this, we look at the mighty God who created the heavens and the earth, and let's delve into that then in Psalm 139. He says, O Eternal, you have searched me and known me. So the very first verse is the personal relationship that God has with us. We've seen from other scriptures that he ponders our hearts. He is very involved in each and every one of our lives and looks at our emotions, our feelings, our attitudes. Uh, he ponders them. He looks for good in them. Sometimes he doesn't see the best. So he does ponder it. What am I to do with this one? Uh, is this someone who is a candidate for my kingdom? And he's looking for the positive in us. He's not looking for the negative. It's, it's all too easy to see. Uh, he's looking for the positive. He wants to save us, in other words. He's not looking for bad. And that's how one of the ways that our minds work differently from God's. He is continually looking for good, trying to see what is worth saving. And we'll see that echoed as we go through this chapter. Uh, and, and David understood that when he wrote this. We often look for error. We often look for fault. We often put people down because that is the satanic or ungodly our human way of looking at things. And we need to understand that God doesn't look at things the way we do. Yes, we can all have a great deal of evil in us. We can have problems. And yet God, in His majesty, has said that it is His glory, His glory, that's quite a word, to overlook sin, to overlook weakness, to overlook our faults, and to find good in us. And we'll see that here as we go. So, 
He says, you've searched me and known me. Now, we could take that as a negative because if we look at ourselves, there's an awful lot there we might not want known. But it's a good thing that God gets to know us. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thought from far off. So David is saying, you are so involved in my life that you know when I sit down, you know when I get up. And Christ echoed this, uh, and may have even taken some of this thought, when he said that God numbers the hair of our head, uh, that he is intensely interested in each and every one of us. Now, you could say, well, this is David, that he had more of a special interest in David because he was someday to become king of all Israel. And yet, I don't think that is the case because Christ was talking to unconverted disciples and others who were in range of his voice when he said that he counts the hair of our head. I think he does that with all human beings, not just a chosen few. David was marveling at that. So he knows when we sit down, when we get up, the physical things. He also knows what we're thinking. That is why we can pray. We don't have to pray audibly. We don't have to have the words come out of our mouth. We often do not pray silently, quietly, and God can read and understand that thought. I pray sometimes aloud. I pray probably a lot more silently than I do aloud, personally. And I have felt closer to God many times in praying silently than I might have at other times. So I know that He hears those thoughts. I'm sure you've had the same experience. You compass my path and my lying down. A compass may be kind of an old English term. Uh, observe might be a more modern terminology. You observe my path and my lying down. You're seeing where I go, what I do. So it's not just sitting down and getting up, but also our path. The places we go, the things we do, he sees. Compass might in one sense be usable there. It's not a normal modern English usage, but he puts a compass to it. He can see which direction we are going. He observes that. And isn't that what he's concerned about, is our direction in life. You are acquainted with all my ways. He knows us very intimately. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Eternal, you know it altogether. He never misses a word we say. He ponders our thoughts, our hearts, and he is aware of everything we say. He is far more observant than even we are of our own selves. How many times do we catch ourselves saying something we probably should not have said, maybe. And we may not even know it or realize it or catch it until 
an hour, a day, a week later, you might say, oh, what did I say? So, he is aware of everything we say. That's, in this context, something to be very thankful for, we shall see. It's not a negative. It's something to be thankful for, that he has this much attention, this much care in our lives, that he observes it all, he knows it all. You have beset me behind and before. Now, beset might is a word that we might take negatively when we're set about or beset with problems or difficulties or whatever. Beset tends to have a, a negative uh, tone to it, but this chapter does not. So I think you have overseen or have observed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me would be a better reading of that. Uh, he oversees in front of us and behind us. Whatever happened before, in the past, he is aware and he is able to take care of. And he also ponders where we're headed. So he looks behind us and he looks ahead of us. And is very concerned with us. And laid your hand upon me here does not mean in terms of punishment or chastening, but laid your hand upon me here in this context is one of his hand is with us. His hand is there to help us, to guide us, to strengthen us. And he confirms that, I think, in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Just as he discusses here the intricacy and the intimacy that God feels and works with each and every one of us in spite of ourselves is such a wondrous, marvelous thing. We know we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know we have faults and problems and lacks and things we want to do we don't do and things we don't want to do we do. We're very aware of our shortcomings. And, well, most of the time, sometimes we don't even see them ourselves for sure. But he just marvels that God is as intimately involved with him. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And the context here again is not of, I'm trying to get away from you. It's, you're all around me. You're with me. You're there. Your hand is upon me. What a wonderful thing. And it doesn't matter where I go, you're there. If I go anywhere, then he names some places. If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. Up or down, anywhere, in heaven or in earth we go, God is there. He is aware. And he cares. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, birds generally, most of them at least, rest at night. And as soon as morning comes, they take wing. They fly about. They're not sitting in one spot. I think he's referring to that. That uh, If I take the wings of the morning, I get up out of bed and I head off somewhere, you're going to be there. 
If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, uh, David didn't know about submarines, but does he mean deep down in the sea, or perhaps an island out in the South Pacific somewhere, or wherever we go across the sea, God will be there with us. Even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Now, we've read many prophecies about this end time and how God is going to take care of his people. And he says, whoever touches you there in Zechariah 2 touches the apple of his eye. The apple that he has his eye on. He is very concerned for us. He is zeroed in on his people here at the end time, those who would obey him. The rest of the world will reach out to touch, to hurt those who are seeking to obey him. And he says, don't touch those people. If you do, you're going to be in serious, deep problems with me. So he is giving uh, encouragement and strength here. And didn't he tell us in some of those prophecies to fear not, to be strong, to be of good courage, and to work? We have a work to do, and I think that is going to become more and more obvious, and it is getting closer and closer to be done. So, we know that God's hand will be there. We don't have to fear. He will take care of us if we're doing what He wants done. Now, if we don't, it's a different story. But He is looking for those who come through. As I said last week, He's not concerned about yesterday. He's concerned about tomorrow. God is a future-looking God, not a dweller in the past. Um, so he says, if you go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So he extends his hand to be sure that we are taken care of. I do not believe that we are subject to time and chance. Uh, as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, time and chance happens to them all. But he was speaking of normal human life without God. And Ecclesiastes is written from that standpoint, just about life in general. And time and chance does happen out in the world. But he makes it very clear in this chapter and in other places that his hand is upon us, that nothing happens to us that he does not pass on, that he does not accept or say, okay, I will allow that to happen, or I will prevent that. He is very involved in our lives. And that was the first message that Christ gave to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount. Or at least a great part of it, an important part of it, was God is there with you in a very intimate way. And he was speaking to those who would lead the beginning of the church. So, he is addressing specifically the church more than the world. While I do believe he keeps an eye on people and he lets it rain or allows it or causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, there are a lot of apples on the tree of mankind. But there are those that he has selected to keep his eye on because those are the ones he wants to pick first, the first fruits. 
So if he's called us in this day and age, we are candidates to be in that first fruit harvest. And he keeps a very special eye on those whom he has called now. Verse 11, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. We might worry about things sometimes. Often we don't need to worry, but we do anyway. But it doesn't matter if things seem dark, if things seem like it's the night. God's light is there. He is always there, day or night. In good times and in bad times for his people, he is there. You know, if he spewed the church out, it wasn't because he was done with it. He spewed the church out, why? Not just because we were bad or Laodicean. The main reason for this, you know, he could have done it differently. He could have just had us all drop dead in our tracks, couldn't he? He has that power. I'm done with him. Kill him. He didn't. He didn't spew us out just because we were lackadaisical. He spewed us out so that we might repent. His love was so great that he took this great a whipping to us, if you will. Because he wanted us to turn it around, to change it, and to go the right way. So the spewing and scattering and punishment on the church is in the long run showing the very deep love of God for us. And if we take that and run with it and do the changing that we need to make, then this thing is going to turn out beautiful for us. Because that's how God thinks. So even when it seems that it's night or darkness or evil or problems... It's for a reason. And the sooner we learn, the sooner he will turn his face back. Now I submit that is true based on many of these prophecies. Because he says those who do turn and repent, he will cause to be in his kingdom. He will cause them to be blessed and he will make them a part of the remnant here at the end that he draws together to finish his work. So there is a reward even in this physical life if we repent now instead of blaming others for the problems in the church. The problems in the church I caused. I've said that before. Each one of us has to look at it that way. I caused. That's why God spewed me out, not them out. And if... I repent, if you repent, then you are going to be part of his faithful tithe that he brings together at the end to finish his work. This is an awesome thing when we understand. So even in the darkness and in the night shall be light about me. Verse 12, yes, the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God sees just as good when it's dark as he does when it's light. 
makes no difference to him. He has his goal, he has his plan, he has his purpose for you and me, does he not? And whether we are walking in the light and things are going well at the moment, or whether we're working in, walking in darkness and things seem bad at the moment, it's all the same to God, because he blesses us at times, and he chastens us at times, but overall his goal and his purpose is to get us to spiritual maturity and to be prepared for his kingdom. So when he's working with us, it's, it's not good or bad times either one to him. It's us. It's you. It's me that he's concerned with. We might feel darkness or we might feel light. But he has a purpose he's working out. And it's the same to him. For you have possessed my reins. <coughs> you have covered me in my mother's womb. Reins you use on a horse to guide it, to lead it where it is to go. Now, you can take the bit in your mouth, and horses sometimes do, and you can become a runaway, or you can buck, you can rebel or turn your shoulder away, as he says in places. But David is marveling that God is always there to steer. He always has the reins. Now, what I'm saying is we're free moral agents and we can rebel if we want to. We can pull back or we can buck against what God is trying to do. So he will not stop us from doing that, but he's always there to turn us the right way, to lead us, to guide us, to help us. That's the point of the reins here, not a a rope that's got you snubbed to a post and makes you do something, but he's there to lead, to guide, to use his hand to turn you left or right or whatever way you need to go at the moment. And he uses the other analogy here. You covered me in my mother's womb. If he counts our hair, even in the womb. Now, there are a few individuals in the Bible that stated... David among them, and Jeremiah, that he was called from the womb. Now, whether we were particularly called or not from the womb, I don't know. But we were certainly, or God was certainly aware of us, even in the womb. There gives you another uh, verse you could use, I think, in this abortion thing that goes on. Uh, that God is very concerned for us, even before we're born and is aware of our development. Let's see that here. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, he's introduced the subject of being a baby in the womb. And he's marveling at how a baby develops and becomes a human being from our very ignominious beginning. We don't amount to much from the moment we're conceived. But... It grows from there. And then you have a human being with all the parts that humans have. What, a, what an incredible, marvelous thing. Marvelous are your works, and that, my, and that my soul knows very well. My substance, or my margin says strength or body, and I think body fits the context here. My body was not hid from you. When I was made in secret and curiously worked in the lower parts of the earth. 
even as he was conceived. He didn't amount to much. More like spit, you might say, was all he amounted to until the combination in the mother's uterus began to form a baby. Didn't amount to anything. The lower parts, the, the lowest form of life, just beginning. Nine months later, what a difference. Let's see that. Verse 16, Your eyes did see my body, yet being unperfect, or uh, modern English, immature. Not even born yet. Not even fully formed. And in your book, all my members or parts were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So he's referring right back from the time of conception forward when you've not even formed to be seen. My daughter sent me a, or texted me a picture of her baby after the first sonogram, and I texted her back and I said, it looks like an alien to me. Uh, it wasn't fully formed. Uh, she said, that's my baby, but I agree with you. <laughs> We kid each other a lot. But that's what he's saying here. You don't, when they can take a picture of you in your womb after about the third or fourth month, you don't look very human yet. You look pretty weird and odd. And then as the pregnancy goes forward, you begin to see more humanness there. So, he was aware of it. In other words, the parts may not have been there yet. He hadn't even developed yet, but the DNA was there. The prototype had been formed. And from that DNA would grow all the pieces and parts of a body. So, David is showing great wonder at what happens in the womb. Now, David never saw a sonogram, you understand. He never looked at probably a human baby in utero. On the other hand, he had been a shepherd and a hunter, and he had seen ewes die. He had probably seen the babies when they were young and unformed. Uh, if you hunt, you'll see that sometimes, babies that are not yet formed are barely formed, are very tiny. So even in nature, and in perhaps abortions and so on, he had seen animals that were not fully formed yet, were just barely getting started. So he had a, a knowledge of these things, apart from sonograms, that we might not stop and think about. But the point is, he's saying, you knew me even back then, when there wasn't much there. So he had put his stamp on that baby before it was born. I do think that there is a good chance that we were wrong years ago uh, when we talked about how a baby had to take the breath of life or it would not be res resurrected. I don't believe that's right. I believe that would give the, the abortionists a very strong case. Well, if God doesn't count it, what difference does it make? But I think this chapter right here and this, these verses show me, and I hadn't focused on them before, that 
God is very concerned from the moment of conception of that child, and the DNA is implanted once the seed of the father and the mother come together. And that baby starts then. may not be formed perfectly yet, but it started. And I do believe God is going to resurrect even those miscarriages that many have suffered. That they will see those babies alive and well in the great white throne judgment. I think God's attentiveness to this is showing that. And I want to file this in the back of my mind if we ever have uh, an argument about abortion. Because this Psalm 139 is very important in showing God's care and concern even for the unborn. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. So you see, that again reflects David's knowledge of how God thinks. God does not think negatively. If we think negatively, we need to work very hard at changing our approach to life. Because God thinks in the positive. The sum of, doing the math, adding up the thoughts of God... They are precious. Now, if they were negative, they would not be precious, would they? There is simply no room for negativity. We are to put it out of our minds. We are to forget yesterday. God gives us a fresh start every day, He says in the book of Lamentations. We need to give each other a fresh start every day, just as He does us. That is the way He thinks. God does not think in negative terms. If we do, then we are not yet thinking like God. Okay? That's just the way it is. So we have to change it. That's what conversion is all about. You know, we we may think of conversion as keeping the Sabbath and the holy days. We may think of conversion as not eating unclean meats. No, those are just physical ramifications. It's the thought process. It's the way we analyze. It's the way we approach things that is true conversion to the way of thinking of God. Christ did not emphasize in His ministry those things of the Old Testament that were established in terms of the Sabbath, the holy days. They're mentioned in passing. They obviously were kept in the New Testament. But his main thrust was our way of thinking, wasn't it? Wasn't Paul's main thrust our way of thinking? When he would say such things as, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Walk as he walked. Think as he thought. Do as he did. That's where the true, real conversion comes, is coming to think like God thinks. We were going through all of these things by rote in the Worldwide Church of God, weren't we? But we, as we heard in the sermonette, when we went to the feast, were we thinking mostly about worshiping the King, the Lord of hosts, or were we thinking more about enjoying our vacation? There was a mixture to be true. And we did rejoice before God to one degree or another. 
but not in quite the way he desired. So, it is a matter of coming to think like God. Now, that's what he wants in his kingdom. There will be perfect harmony. He will not allow any stinking thinking in his kingdom. He says, even while the Father and the Son are here in the millennium, when his government is here, <coughs> that outside Jerusalem will be all of those who are breaking the law, who are not thinking right. They will not be allowed within the city. So, if the Egyptian come not up, or the Mitzriamite, or whoever, any, anyone, come not up to keep the feast, they'll have no rain, they'll begin to change their thinking the thought process of their mind. And then they will be allowed within the city once the thinking changes, but not until. Another good proof, of course, that the kingdom of God and the Father and the Son and the New Jerusalem will be here at the beginning of the millennium. And once this phase is done, the millennium and the great white throne judgment, there will be no humans left. So at that time, certainly no one who was unclean would enter. But there are still men there in the new heavens and new earth, as we see in Isaiah 65 and in Revelation 20 and 21, 22. So we have a challenge, brethren, to sum up our thinking and cause it to be like God's thinking. He's not talking about that here, but I, I put it in because we know that we don't think quite like him, but we need to understand that it is the thinking that is the important part. And Christ emphasized that. He says, even to look upon a woman that lust after her, you've done it in your heart. Or to do this or to do that, it's in your heart and your mind. That thinking has to change, you see. It's not just our acts or our deeds, but we have to come to think as God thinks. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. And I think that's part of the marvel, because David was comparing the way his mind worked, and it worked humanly and carnally, like ours do. So he was thinking of God and all the good things of God and what God does and comparing himself to it and saying, Wow, I marvel at your thoughts because my thoughts are not your thoughts and ours are subject to having to be worked upon to come to be like his. How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. The goodness... And the wonderful thoughts of God <coughs> are greater than the sands of the sea. You can't even count them. <coughs> so to sum it all up or to number his thoughts, he said they're like the sand of the sea. You can't, I can't even imagine. And I can't. You can't. How could God keep his eye on six and a half billion people? How can God know what's going on? How could he count the hair on this number of people in this room today? 
There's hair on the floor some of you have shed since you've been here. And maybe you've grown a new one. I don't know. But God's keeping track of all that. You, you, you can't even begin to imagine how intricate and how powerful a mind he has. It's, it's beyond us. When I awake, I am still with you. We can pray before we go to bed for God's protection, for his safety through the night, for his oversight over us, and we often do. But when I wake up, you haven't gone away, you're still there. What a comfort that is. And he says, you got a new start this morning, bud. Get out there, get it done. So he's still there with us. And we then in the morning pray for his guidance and direction and his help through the day that we be what we ought to be and do what we ought to do. Surely you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. So he says, look at what I have. This God of the universe, who has known me from the time I was conceived forward, who sees everything I do, follows me, watches me, guides me, leads me. Stay away from me, O wicked man. Don't want that. Because even though he marveled at what God can and does do, he realized he still had a fight on his hands. He realized that there's still a lot of evil around and that it was a constant battle. So, yes, we're to think positively. Yes, we're to move forward, not backward. We're to think of tomorrow, not today, or, well, today in terms of what we're still doing, not yesterday, it's gone. You can't do a thing about it. It's past. Nobody can do anything about what they did yesterday or the day before. It's just done. So we put it under the blood of Christ and move forward, don't we? That's what we have to do. That's the way he thinks. Not always the way we think, but that's how he thinks. So he says, keep the wicked away from me. I don't want to think that way. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Eternal, that hate you? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against you? See why Christ and Paul said our fellowship is not with the world. It's with the Father and the Son and our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where our fellowship should be, speaking from 1 John. But he hates evil, and he tells us not to mix with evil because we'll be pulled down by it. So David is making this contrast between the marvelous God of the universe that is his first and primary companion and the evil that was still around him. And trying to maintain a positive attitude in the midst of evil is very, very difficult. It does take the Spirit of God, closeness to God, and positive thinking. That's what it takes. Verse 22, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Anyone who would draw us away from God has to be counted as an enemy. We're here to help each other, to strengthen each other toward God, not to discourage one another from God. The world and Satan would discourage us from God. 
So we have to hate that way and not look back. So he says then, and this is a positive statement too, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now we're laying ourselves open when we say that, aren't we? Because we know our thoughts are not always what our thoughts ought to be. But he's saying this from a very positive uh, perspective. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So he says, I understand the marvels of God and his Son. And I invite them to look at me, to know that there may be some bad ways in me, but to lead me in the way everlasting. God is capable of that. We fight ourselves. But if we go to God and turn to Him with our hearts, He will lead us in the way everlasting. He'll lead us into eternal life. Now that's His whole attitude and that's, whole, that's His whole approach is that each of us might be a part of His kingdom someday. Can't argue with that. Wow, what a, an incredible Godhead we have, the Father and the Son, who think positively about us, who are pulling for us, who are trying to help us, who are there willing to lead us and guide us in their way, even though we fight it and pull back and do things we shouldn't do, say things we shouldn't say and think things we shouldn't think. He's very loving and very forgiving, and He can lead us out of sin and into everlasting life that he can do that he has avowed himself to do he has told us if we will repent and turn change our thinking become truly converted he will give us eternal life deliver me verse chapter 140 O eternal, from the evil man, preserve me from the violent man. So acknowledge the providence of God. And then look around and realize you still need help. And this is a prophetic passage. All of this is as well. Because God is looking right now at those whom he has called. And he is carefully choosing those whom he will save, and those he will stir to come out and to finish his work. He is very carefully pondering our hearts. And yet we have all this around us that would pull us away. And we have a world out there that is going to fight tooth and toenail to the death to destroy everyone who would obey God. Satan is going to be turned loose on the church. At least those left behind. Those whom God pulls out as his tithe, he is going to protect. He's going to be with. He'll be a wall of fire around. He's going to take care of them. But even as David faced physical enemies in his uh, reign as king... We are going to face physical enemies. In fact, the whole world will be against us. 
And anyone who kills us will think he's doing God a service. And they will kill a lot of people in the church. There will be a lot of martyrdom. We can pray that we be counted a worthy to escape these things and to help finish the work of God. So he says, preserve me from the violent man. Don't we pray the same? We see it coming. It's right out there in front of us. And it's going to be honest before you know it. Now, it's coming very, very rapidly. So we can pray this prayer. It's very prophetic. It's very now. Save me from the violent man which imagine mischiefs in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. They'll find anything they can about us that they can accuse us of. Satan is a liar. He's the dragon. He's the serpent. And they will find anything and everything, whether it be true or false, to accuse us of. Adder's poison is under their lips, seeking to pull down rather than help up. Love helps up. Love strengthens. Sin and hate pull down. Yes, we need the love of God to love even our enemies. It's easy to love those that you like or like you. It's very hard to love those who despise you, who are enemies, who would try to pull you down. That's what an enemy does. It's a challenge. So, mankind will sharpen their tongues against us. So be it, or understand this. Selah. Keep me, O Eternal, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. David had first-hand experience with this. He had people in his own family who were seeking to kill him, who were conspiring his death because they wanted the throne. Not just enemies out there, but enemies from within, even his own family. Even one of his sons defiled all his wives right out in public, well, in a tent, but in that sense, right in front of all Israel. So he truly understood those that he loved, those that he cared about, even them trying to pull him down. So it can come from without, it can come from within. Keep me, O Eternal, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man. Who have, Well, I've already read that. Let's go to verse 5. The proud have hid a snare for me. And cords, or a snare, and ropes, anything to trip him up, to capture him. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Ways to trip him up. Ways to catch him. Ways to find out if he was doing wrong. Spying on him and trying to destroy him. Those things were happening in his life, and they're going to be happening with the world against us. I said to the Eternal, You are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. Now, it doesn't matter who's trying to destroy you. It doesn't matter how they're trying to bring you down. If you turn to God, He will save you. And what really counts is not the moment. What counts is the resurrection. 
So it doesn't matter what men can do to you. It doesn't matter what they say about you. God can take care of it. So where did David, when he considered his enemies and those who had things against him, what did he consider? Talk to God. When he thought about his enemies, I said to the Eternal, You are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. (coughs) O God the Eternal, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. I think that expression means you've protected my head. (laughs) You've covered it where they can't cut it off, in other words. So if we turn to God, He will protect us. Grant not, O Eternal, the desires of the wicked. Further not, His wicked device, lest they exalt themselves. Remember the the kid that uh, killed Saul? They went and bragged. What did David do? Cut his head off. Cut that man's head off. Saul was not righteous. Saul was somebody that God had chosen to remove. He had already anointed David ahead of time. uh, Saul was a lame duck at that point. He was going to be removed, but he hadn't been removed yet. And David knew that he had been anointed to take Saul's place. But he also had knowledge of God's ways and, and knowledge of how God thinks. And when he saw that man brag about having harmed or slain Saul, who was God's anointed, David saw that that man was killed on the spot. On the spot. We need to be very, very careful lest we be found fighting God. God would have removed Saul in his time, when he desired. Jacob would have received the birthright whether or not, I mean, yeah, whether or not he and his mama Rachel had conspired against Esau. What they did was wrong. Now, God went ahead and used it for his purposes. But what they did to Esau was wrong. God could have taken care of that. He could have, in his own way, given Jacob the birthright, don't you think? We must be very careful with each other and even with the wicked in the world. We do not want to see their demise. We do not want to see them go through famine and suffering and pestilence and disease. And yet God says that's what it's going to take. So we need to sorrow in that sense. Those who sigh and cry, Isaiah says, for the abominations they see around them. Not hate for the world. God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son that they might have eternal life. God does not hate the people of this world, even though He is going to see to it that roughly 90% of them die. And yet He loves them so much that He sent His Son that they might be forgiven, that they might come up in the great white throne judgment, and that they might ultimately have life eternal. This is just what it takes to get them there. And what you and I are going through today is what it takes to get us there. 
we have been chosen, or at least called, to be chosen as part of the first fruits. And I hope we can all make it, every last one of us. As for the head of those that compass me about, let the mischief of their own lips cover them. What they're saying, he says, about me, let it come upon them. If they're trying to kill me, if they're trying to destroy me, let their own lips condemn them and cause it to come on them. Now this is a prayer that we can pray. He's supplicating God to take care of his enemies for him. He was not trying to take vengeance on them himself. Perhaps by this point in his life, David had learned something. Beforehand, he would pick up the sword and he'd go kill everybody in sight. And God did not let him build the temple because he was a bloody man bent on destroying his enemies himself. His other big sin, he lost a son over. But God blessed him in the long run anyway. But his bloodiness kept him from building the temple. So this is late in the Psalms. This is toward the end. This is when maybe he had learned vengeance is the eternals. <coughs> he was, at this point, perhaps as an older man, not ready to take his sword and go out and try to kill 10,000 Philistines or his own sons or whoever these enemies might have been at the time. He said, God, you take care of it. That's his supplication. Protect me, help me as I serve you, but take care of my enemies for me. Verse 10, let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. I would have hated to have been David's enemy when he wrote this, wouldn't you? <laughs> that would have been a very precarious position to be in. If I knew that I was killing or, or, or had a conspiracy against David, or was trying to pull him down in whatever way, and maybe he had done a rough draft of this psalm, and as his son I had come in and I would read what he had written, that would scare me. We must be careful because there may be people supplicating God. You take care of my enemies. You take care of my problems. You handle it, Father. I can't. It's beyond me. It is beyond all of us, isn't it? We can't take it into our hands. Vengeance is not ours. It is God's. And he is quite capable of judging heart and mind and thought and I'm glad the judgment is his, not mine or yours. On every one of us. Because we, if human beings were allowed to judge all human beings, how many do you think there'd be in the kingdom of God? None. Because somebody would send every last one of us into the lake of fire. I'm glad God is the judge because he will send none <clears throat> to the lake of fire that do not insist upon going there. 
He'll put them through the fire of tribulation and death, but He's not going to cut them out of the kingdom of God. The lowest person on this earth, brethren, I don't know who you think that would be, murderers, homosexuals, prostitutes, abortionists, start naming different things that are horrendous to us. Whatever it might be, God is going to save those people. They've not had a chance yet. They're going to. And He's going to save the vast majority of them. How thankful we can be, the God who loves us and loves all mankind is the judge. And we are not. Verse 11, Let not an evil speaker be established in the earth. Evil shall hunt the violent man to overthrow him. So he's contrasting here the sum of God's thinking, which is positive and is wondrous and is awesome and is bent on saving everyone. God is positive. But he says, don't let speakers of evil, that doesn't mean somebody speaking publicly, but anyone who speaks evil of other people, be established in the earth. They'll be uprooted. Those who will be established in the earth, in the millennium, and even here in the end time, are going to be those who put evil speaking away and who speak kindly, gently, lovingly to one another. That's the ones that will be established. So his prayer was, don't let evil speakers be established in the earth. Evil shall hunt the violent man to overthrow him. In other words, you reap what you sow. Said a lot of different ways in the Bible, but that's the way he puts it here. I know that the eternal will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. It doesn't matter who we are. God is going to take care of those who have need. The poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan. In fact, we're admonished over and over and over again to be sure those people are taken care of. Because God has a special care, even beyond His normal care, for those who have a, a, a plight of some kind. It can even be widowed or, or whatever that puts us in a position. Well, that's what He says, the widows. But I'm, I'm saying the widower as well. Those are the ones that He wants us to have special care for because they have special needs. They don't have what a lot of other people have. So, God's way of thinking is not negative toward those who have problems and difficulties and needs. His heart goes out to them to help them. And David is praying that, and saying, he's not asking this, he says, I know this, you're going to take care of those who have special needs. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. So, summarized, he has here a chapter 139 about the awesomeness and the providence of Almighty God in heaven. And then he shows that we're still going to have troubles in this life, especially here at the end time. The troubles will uh, escalate, but God is there to take care of us. 
And we are going to become the poor and the needy and the orphans when the new world order takes over, aren't we? They're going to accept with open arms those who will worship and obey and serve them. But we are going to be the orphans. The ones on the outside that no one wants. And God is going to take care of us. He says so. And David acknowledged that. So this is a prophecy for now. And a great lesson for us in coming to see God and think like He thinks. Understand Him better. So we can begin to be more like Him as we go through each day. Awful lot of good stuff in these two chapters.